Hi. Hello, everyone. It is my honor to welcome everyone to the first event in the 2016 Sonderman Presidential Symposium. <laughs> Professor Fred Sonderman taught at the Colorado College from 1953 until his untimely death in 1978. He was a legendary teacher and nationally recognized scholar who made many creative contributions to the college program. He conceived the idea for a presidential symposium and directed the first one in 1968. His aim was to discuss current political issues and to analyze the role of the presidency in modern American politics, both domestic and foreign. The symposium's success was such that the Department of Political Science made it a commitment to offer a presidential symposium in subsequent presidential election years. Sonderman continued to direct them through 1976. The 2016 Sonderman Presidential Symposium is the 13th in the series, and we are very excited for all of the events in the months to come. Following our distinguished speaker this evening, we will host Chief Strategist for President Obama's presidential campaigns, David Axelrod, Washington Week's host, Gwen Eiffel, Slate's Chief Political Correspondent, Jamel Bowie, former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, and several prominent academics. In addition, we'll be holding a panel on Colorado politics next week. As can be seen in the multiple perspectives represented in this lineup, our hope is that this symposium will encourage a healthy dialogue with the Colorado College community and the Colorado Springs community at large. We see this symposium as an opportunity to dissect this unique election through a variety of lenses and perspectives. The symposium is made possible through the hard work of many people. I would like to thank President Tiefenthaler and her wonderful staff, the Communications Department, the Academic Events Committee, and the Political Science Department faculty and staff. I would also like to express particular gratitude towards Assistant Professor of Political Science, Elizabeth Coggins, for her tireless work. It is also important to note that the talk today is a Jovanovich lecture for this academic year. William Jovanovich was part owner of Hartcourt Brace Jovanovich publishing firm and a dear friend of Colorado College. This lectureship was created in his honor in the spirit of facilitating annual all-college lectures by a major, major public figure focusing typically on public affairs. And now to the main event. I am very pleased to introduce Donna Brazil. She is a veteran political strategist an adjunct professor at Georgetown University, an author, a syndicated columnist, former vice chair for civic engagement and voter participation at the Democratic National Committee, and former chair of the Democratic National Committee's Voting Rights Institute. And as everyone here is probably aware, she is currently serving as interim chair of the Democratic National Committee. She's worked on every presidential campaign from 1976 to 2000, when she became the first African-American to, to direct a major presidential campaign, acting as a campaign manager for Vice President Al Gore in 2000. We are so excited that she is the first speaker in the symposium, not just because of her amazing experience, but also because of the passion that she has shown for working with young people, encouraging them to vote, run for office, and work within the system to strengthen it, in fact, she's lectured at over 187 colleges and universities on topics from race to gender to civility in American politics. 
We are grateful that she is here today, continuing her strong tradition of, not, of helping young minds understand this complicated and always exciting world of politics. Please join me in welcoming Donna Brazil. Hi. Hello, everyone. Hello. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for your kind and gracious introduction. It's such a great honor to be here in Colorado before the leaves change. <laughs> I was just in Florida. Yeah, and guess what? I, I'm praying tonight for everybody in Florida and South Carolina and Georgia, wherever that storm may go. I, I, I was telling the president, Madam President, I love, I'm practicing now, Madam President, Jill, <laughs> just, practicing, right? I said, there's something about me. I, I land in a state and two days later there's a storm. When I arrived here today, I said, oh, Lord, please don't let those clouds over the mountain come into the valley. I don't want a storm to appear. I'm one of those people that when you need rain, just call Donna. I guess people cry over me. That's what it's called. Well, it is great to be on the campus where the mascot is referred to as the Tigers. So go Tigers. And I'm excited to kick off. Uh, this symposium here at Colorado College, and I'm, I'm really grateful that you've allowed me to come in the middle of a presidential campaign season. For those of you who are counting, we have 68 days left. Yes. See what I mean? Somebody just say, boo. Honey, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to resume watching Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a disruptive year. Disruptive. And I come to you tonight as the interim chair of the Democratic National Committee. It's a position I've held before, but never for too long. That's where the interim part comes. As the interim chair of the Democratic National Committee, it's a position I'm always honored to feel and embarrassed to always say I'm available. <laughs> But hey, what's, better, what, what's a better way for a political party to get to know the plight of American workers than to have the head of the party be a temporary worker? <laughs> Essentially, I am to the DNC what Billy Martin was to the New York Yankees. If you recall, Billy Martin did pretty darn good. Hopefully, I can help guide my team to victory without having too many alter altercations with the umpires. Now, this is a, a so-called blue state that is trending purple, but it still has some red in it. And that's, uh, you know, imagine if you become totally blue or totally red, uh, you won't have to worry about uh, these politicians coming to take over your airwaves. You can recapture your air airwaves so you can spend every four years uh, watching soap operas as the world turns, searching for tomorrow with one life to live. And you won't be bombarded with all these TV ads. Uh, you can watch commercials about cars, fast food, football, and, of course, erectile dysfunction like the rest of America. 
But there are some advantages you all know of being a competitive political state, a, a very competitive political environment. Uh, you have a, a wonderful uh, senator who's up for re-election, Michael Bennett. Uh, he is, uh, he's being opposed by Daryl Glenn, who is uh, a darling of the Tea Party. Um, you're going to uh, have a lot of attention in this state because there are a lot of down-ballot races and, of course, state house races. Um, I could tell you more about that, but uh, I'm not running for governor. I'm just here as a, a former TV commentator. Actually, I'm a former actress, too. I've appeared on The Good Wife three times, House of Cards twice, being Mary Jane once. But after all these years in politics, I guarantee you I'm, I'm best suited for the Game of Thrones. So you're going to get a lot more attention over the next six to eight days. Kathleen Sebelius, the former governor of Kansas, is coming tomorrow. Uh, Barbara Lee, the congresswoman, the dynamic congresswoman from the great state of California, is coming. Keith Ellison is coming. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is coming. Barney Sanders is coming. I mean, Barack Obama might come back. You never know. I mean, <laughs> Donald Trump is going to show up at some point. I guess, isn't this on the way someplace? He'll refuel here. I don't want to talk too much about Donald Trump. My hair, is it okay? <laughs> but you know what? You, you, you know what I like about battleground states? It's, it's like you're the popular girl in high school and the weeks leading up to the prom. I'm here to tell you to be careful who you pick for your prom date this year. Because this one you're going to be stuck with for four years. So do it right, Colorado, and be remembered as a state that put somebody over the 270 electoral votes. Now, <clears throat> I'm being neutral. <laughs> oh, that's right. Last time I visit, visited your state, I was neutral. I was a neutral superdelegate. <laughs> oh. Now, there's hardly any election left or contest to be neutral about, so Hillary and Bernie are on the same team, and I'm glad to be part of that team. And I'm honored to tell you that they are working very closely together, and we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about the things that unite uh, the party. But, but again, as I mentioned, that's what I do uh, when I'm not going around to battleground states or causing storms throughout the southeast. Now, I understand that this is a very uh, selective school, Madam President, and so I'm, I'm grateful that you invited me. I, I heard some of the other people that will be coming, but just remember, you invited me first. <laughs> uh, so this is, um, this is a, a moment when normally in a presidential year, I begin to focus on what's really at stake. And every four years, we talk about how important this election is and what's at stake and why we need people to get out and vote. And I know every four years it sounds like a broken record, a melody that you get tired of hearing, but it is true. For the first time in my adult life, I can't tell you, all three branches of the government are up for grabs. And while some people look at today's polls and believe that one candidate is leading the other, or one candidate is gaining on the other. The truth of the matter is, is that these elections are always close until the very last vote is counted. So if you haven't 
taking time out of your busy lives to figure out if your registration status is up to date. This is a great time to do it. And the folks here in Colorado, you have an excellent record, a very strong record of civic participation. Over 70% of Coloradans voted in 2012. And right now, the projection, the computer model, you know, that's what we do in politics now, the computer model. The computer model have you all at 78% potential turnout. Now, I read up on this school. I love, I love college. In fact, when I got the call to become interim chair, I immediately called CNN, I immediately called ABC, I immediately uh, dropped all of my, quote unquote, my contracts, my media contracts, my political contracts, and I said, I'm gonna give up everything. But the one thing I did not give up is my own teaching schedule. And so next Wednesday, I return to Georgetown for my 15th year, and I'm grateful to the students and the faculty who will allow me to come back and be able to be a part-time professor. And this time, I really will emphasize part-time. <laughs> but I love coming to campuses. I get fired up and ready to go. And of course, while all colleges and their students share a lot of things in common, even among small liberal arts colleges, this wonderful college is very, very unique. And that's besides the innovative block plan approach to academics. As I said, I've been to a lot of schools, but the block plan makes, it a, makes a lot of sense to me, and I hope other schools try it out. At least I hope to, to talk about it. This year, U.S. News and World Report ranked Colorado College as number one among the most innovative national liberal art colleges in the country. And good for you. Good for you. And maybe it's your unique location here at the foot of the Rockies. I think what distinguishes this, this college is its altitude as well as its attitude. And you have a very dynamic president and a great faculty. So you are lucky, my friends. Come on, you can. What are you, in your fourth gear and you're trying to make sure you get out on the right side? I got you, baby. But college is a time to prepare, to climb how appropriate, to launch yourself into the great unknown, to explore the heavens and your own soul. We are discovering the wonders of the universe, but are we discovering the wonders within ourselves? It seems the further we go as a country out there, the more we find it reflects on what's going on right here, right here where we live. It's a baffling universe, black holes, dark matter, violent outbursts of matter and energy, a vacuum filled with noise. That sounds like a pretty good description of our political process, the current lack of political discourse. Yes, there, yet there's also harmony, rhythm, mysterious forces that entangle particles. So if one moves, it affects another, even over long distances. If we study the stars in the heavens, we see order emerging from chaos. And this too reflect, if not the present reality of politics, then certainly the potential future if we will pursue it, toll for it, engage in the civic enterprise. I want you to know, y'all, and that's my Southern speak, that there's, there's no such thing as sitting out a presidential election. <laughs> P 
Politics is the essence of who we are. We the people. It's not we the politicians or we the lobbyists or we the big donors or even we the media. It's we the people. And the sooner we get back to that basic enterprise of civility, the better off we will be as a country and the better off I think our world will become as well. And there's something to say about living here in Colorado that I have to give appreciation to the, what I call the beauty of this place, the leadership that emerges even from the political leadership that even emerged from a state like Colorado. And just recently, you might have heard that CC alumni and former Senator Ken uh, Salazar, served, uh, who served as the Secretary of Interior, he will lead the Clinton-Cain transition team. This is a college that produced winners, produced champions. Not too many colleges can boast they have a Nobel Prize winner on the faculty, but you do. James Heckman, who won the prize in economics in 2000, he's only one of the dozens of enterprising teachers and researchers that you have here on your faculty. There are many more outstanding alumni, of course, but I want to point out one in particular, Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney, who is now the Republican nominee for Congress in the state of Wyoming. Liz Cheney, the former daughter uh, of Vice President Dick Cheney and Lynn Cheney, who has had a, her own distinguished career in public service, working for many years in the State Department and politics. Now, I guess you're surprised that here I am, the interim chair of the Democratic Party, mentioning, with respect, someone whose views on almost every issue of the opposite of my own. But that's just the point. Civil discord, uh, div, mm, sorry, civil discourse about the issues and problems facing us require passion and commitment to your ideals, but also respect for the passion and the commitment of those on the other side. Without that respect, there can be no dialogue, and without dialogue, there can be no progress. So let us acknowledge accomplishments and dedication wherever we find them, because I do believe we need more civil discourse. I spent a year and a half before becoming interim chair back on CNN and ABC, CNN almost nightly, talking about whatever one particular candidate tweeted about early that morning. I never thought in, in my wildest dream when my ex-boss, my, my former boss, who inspired the, the, what I call the creation of the internet and all the other tools of the internet, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, I never thought I would spend my entire days, weeks, talking about a tweet. But, and it's hard after a tweet to go back and have a civil conversation because 140 characters, there's not much else to say other than to retweet it or to delete the tweet. <laughs> but I've been tested, as many of you can understand, in my 40 years of being engaged in American politics. I've been tested in my belief in and also my, my commitment to civil discourse. For years, conservative columnist George Will and I butted heads on ABC this week with George Stephanopoulos but we became good friends off the set. And the reason why is I came to respect George Will. We, we disagreed at first. I, I would say, George, you're quoting Hamilton, uh, Madison. Why don't you quote Tupac or even Elvis? <laughs> Didn't work. But I came to appreciate George Will's knowledge 
of the Constitution and his love and passion for many of the founders. Perhaps a better example is my good friend back home in New Orleans, Mary Matlin, in her day as a leading Republican consultant who ran George Herbert Walker Bush re-election campaign. Shortly after the 1992 campaign, she married my raging Cajun cousin, James Carville. <laughs> now, James, as you know, ran Bill Clinton's campaign in that election season. And despite their political differences, Mary Steele, a very staunch libertarian conservative, having just switched to the Libertarian Party, I wonder who ran her out. Um, <laughs> and James, James is still a, a very, very much a progressive liberal involved in the democratic politics. They've been married for over 20 years, and they have two remarkable daughters. Their political differences don't define them, and they live in harmony, like the universe, as I mentioned. Out of chaos, order emerges. So if they can get along, engage in civil discourse, build a life and a family together, and Mary can cook now better Cajun dishes than James, then surely the rest of us, you can tell I said that, and don't tell James, because he'll try to get us to eat alligator gumbo again and again. I say, James, if you can't eat it the first night, this is something that you cannot have seconds. It just don't taste right the first time, James. And I don't care how many gators cross the street at night, you don't have to capture all of them and bring them home. Just keep them out. James, I'll go to the grocery store and buy some chicken like most regular people. But what I'm trying to say is that people can get along. And I came here tonight to talk about political discourse and why we have to continue despite this very disgusting and disruptive election season, we got to find ways to get along and find common ground and, and find those shared values that make us truly and remarkably, remarkably American. So what is civil discourse? How does it impact civic engagement? And, and what does it mean for elections in our future? First, let us admit that the current atmosphere is toxic. It's bad. We are more partisan. We're more divided than ever. It used to be that we praised politicians who reached a hand across the aisle. Now we demand that they build a wall down the middle. When did all of this toxicity start? Well, it didn't start eight years ago when President Obama was elected. It started decades ago. And the truth is, there's also been a vile strain in our political discourse at the extremes of the parties in, in, in certain corners of the national media. And politics has always been personal. Not even George Washington was spared. One factional press condemned the man who had entailed upon his country deep and incurable evils. And Thomas Paine wrote that under Washington, I quote, injustice was acted under the pretense of faith and the chief of the army became the patron of the fraud. That's George Washington, folks. So it's not new. But the disinformation, the smears, and the newspeak, the newspeak has proliferated with the rise of advertising, TV, cable, and the upheavals that, that uh, has followed us since the Vietnam War. Now, I, I consider that to be one of the, the turning points when we no longer are able to have a conversation about any topic without having a left or a right. Now, as I said last week on Sunday, I said, so one white candidate called 
another white candidate a bigot. And then the other white candidate said, no, you're a textbook bigot. Now, I am a black woman. And I know bigotry when I see it. And can we go beyond just the name calling and get back to what Dr. King dreamed back um, in 1963? So yes, I go back to the Vietnam War to see how our politics and our political discourse has really uh, has been altered and how it, it, it destroys civility and destroys our ability to have a conversation. Another turning point was the Willie Hartnett and the 1988 campaign. I know many of y'all don't remember that campaign. Some of you millennials probably wasn't even born, but your parents were thinking about you. <laughs> now, this was a campaign ad that was used to frighten Southern whites with the stereotype of the dangerous black man. The dangerous black man. And can you imagine what it feels like now to have a candidate go before an all-white audience and demonize and stereotype a, a large group of American people without talking to them, without saying, I'm here in your church, I'm at your school, I'm in your community. But these days, things have deteriorated. The New York Times raised a question that confronts us all. How do we deal with the message of hatred and paranoia that is inciting millions of voters? For unworkable ideas and vicious emotions have been unleashed. Did you feel it? I feel it. I call it a renaissance of racism, and it's a bad thing. We now see the bigots emboldened and the white supremacists, David Duke again running for the United States Senate back in my home state of Louisiana. And this time he's getting mainstream coverage. The challenge, not just to the responsible leaders of any political party, but to all of us, is how to separate the what I call the economic discontent from the bigotry as well as the paranoia. As President Obama put it so well, he said, we can't expect to solve our problems if all we do is tear each other down. You can disagree with a certain policy without demonizing a person who espouses it. You can question somebody's views and their judgment without questioning their motives or their patriotism. This kind of vilification and over-the-top rhetoric closes the door to the possibility of compromise. It undermines democratic deliberations, end of quote. Further, the president said, when facts and reason are thrown overboard and only timidity passes for wisdom, we can no longer even engage in a civil conversation with each other over the things that truly matter. At that point, we don't merely lose our capacity to solve big challenges, we lose something essential about ourselves. So my friends, the answer then is not to run away, to ignore the problem, to pretend it doesn't affect us because it does, especially you, the future, or that we are powerless to do anything. We have an enormous power. The opposite is true. We the people have the power we can overcome the political poison, tame the toxic elements of the media. And I know that as someone who has spent 14 years under the bright HD TV lights, which I still believe is the death of all of us. <laughs> we can do something. But often we believe that we don't have the power. 
So how do we do it? We do it through civic engagement. We do it through symposiums like we're having tonight. Getting involved, learning about the issues, sharing ideas, working towards solutions together. That's one reason why elections matter. I went an entire year without having one substantive conversation. And back in April, I was called in for an 11 o'clock show. We call them hit times. I got there, and I assume I was going up against Anna Navarro or any number of Republicans who've worked on presidential campaigns. For the record, I have nine presidential campaigns under my belt, okay? Nine. And I have 10 years, 10 years of working on Capitol Hill. I've worked on 55 congressional campaigns, 19 state and local campaigns, so I get to know the issues. In fact, I've worked in 49 states, one more state I'm going to become Miss USA without the bikini. <laughs> but that morning I got up, got dressed, ran down to CNN, got my hair and makeup done, thank you, Lord, <laughs> sat down and they said, Democratic strategist Donna Brazil, we're here today to talk about a, and then they mentioned that we were going to talk about gun violence. I said, okay, I can do gun violence. And then they said, and they introduced my Republican, and I thought it was, again, somebody who's worked on campaigns, worked on Capitol Hill, maybe a former member of Congress. It was a former Miss Universe. I said, oh, hell. <laughs> what? <laughs> Before they, what? Miss Universe? I, I, don't know what, I don't know how to go up against Miss Universe. Seriously. Miss Universe. I mean, we're now, they, they just pick people up. I often say, what campaign, I, I used to sit on CNN until 11, what campaign did you work on? Well, I, I met Mr. Trump. No, 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 what campaign did you work on? <laughs> Name one. City council? Did you work on a state governor? Uh, John McCain, Mitt Romney, George Bush? That's what you're up against now. I'm up against Miss Universe <laughs> without the bikini, without long hair extensions. In fact, I let my hair go purple when Prince died. I was trying to make a statement. So look, the only way to increase civil discourse is if we can have a conversation. And for full disclosure, I'm on the board the National Board for Civic Discourse, sponsored by the University of Arizona. Civil discourse is important because when you talk with someone you, dis you disagree with, it requires five things. I'm telling you this from my 14 years at CNN and 12 years at ABC, it re requires you to listen. You gotta listen. I actually listen to people. It also requires you to be polite. You ever notice I go into my zone of Ask New Gingrich when he comes. <laughs> In fact, sometimes what I like to do when I have somebody like New Gingrich who like to breathe into the microphone when they talk, I just grab my hand and I just hit him across the shoulder. You okay? <laughs> Calm down. Or I pretend that they're having hot flashes. <laughs> Listen. Be polite. Use critical thinking. 
use what's between these ears. Be willing to change. Yeah, I mean, I've heard there, there's been times I've come away saying, you know, I didn't go into this, this conversation believing that, but I came away agreeing with one or two points, and that's okay. I didn't have to agree with Hillary Clinton throughout the primary. I didn't, I didn't have to disagree with Bernie, Bernie Sanders. In fact, I kept saying a woman of a certain age can't feel the burn. But all my nieces and nephews was feeling the burn. They enjoyed the burn. And I love the burn. I love all of the issues. I just couldn't feel it that way. You know, I was already hot. That's why I just stayed neutral. Be willing to change. And, and lastly, dialogue for solutions. Dialogue for solutions. Listeners. Listening is the most important skill, but it must be active listening. Hear what the person is saying and sense the unspoken subtext. Refrain from interrupting or formulating a response before the person finishes. I know how hard that is. Several times at night, I'm on and say, oh, I can't wait to just, and then I just say, stop it. Listen. And then you, you, you find a way to, when you go back at them or you get your turn, you're able to make your point because you listen to their opinion. If you've been actively listening, you should be able to reflect back not only what the person said, but the unexpressed feeling or belief behind it. Next, be polite. Be polite. It doesn't cost you nothing to smile. Just okay. It makes you feel good, too. I bring a lot of bubble gum on the set. So during the commercial breaks, I just, <laughs> just try to get it out of my system. I tried that, that red stuff, but the Twizzlers and the black one, and I just got in the middle of my teeth. I couldn't do that. So I had to stick with double mint. But it helped. It kept me being polite. See, you ever notice when I come back from the air, I'm always still smiling? Yeah, bubblegum works. David Axelrod likes to bring nuts and raisins. So when y'all see David, y'all ask David, where are the nuts and raisins? Don't ask me why he bring nuts and raisins on the set. Y'all get that from him. But keep the discussion on the topic. Keep it on the topic. Never try to go below the belt. You can only make a fool of yourself. Don't get too hot. Leave out the personal, the jab, the swipe, the sneer, the ad hominem attack. It's important not to get distracted into what I call irrelevant conversation and sound bites, to chase the red heron, to retreat into the tribal. That's easy to do in the heat of the moment. Trust me, I have had to help. I have gone home some nights to wash my mouth out with Chardonnay. It's been that hard. <laughs> That's why it's important to stay calm, to recognize that you're talking about ideas, not people that the other person has a life outside of the conversation, a life filled with its own tests and problems, with a family with needs and pressure. One trick to avoid losing one's temper or getting angry or losing respect for the other person is to check what tense you're talking in. I learned this from one of my professors back in the day. They said, listen to the tense. And of course, you know, Southern people, we don't have tenses. But I try. Uh, but if, you, if, 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 they're, if they're talking a lot of past tense, what did this one do or didn't do, or you're in the blame game, or you need to get out, uh, you know what, when you start hearing people say, well, when Ronald Reagan, you say, oh, okay, 
get ready, get your polite face on, and get right back into the conversation. So if you're in the present tense, it means you've gone tribal, all us versus them, you're boasting, not talking. The place to be always is in the future, which after all is your time and your place. Identify the problem, find common ground, and works toward a solution you can both live with. It's called compromise, and it's how our system has worked and survived for over 200 years. Third, use critical thinking. One reason you're here at this fine institution is to learn how to do that. Start by defining your terms. Just what are you talking about and why? Are you just trying to understand each other or do you want to work toward a solution? Master the tools of critical thinking and of rhetoric. Be skeptical of the other side, yes, but even be more skeptical of your side. Know the difference between fact and belief, opinion and argument. Stick to the fact and argument. Fourth, be willing to change. You don't have to be what I say, you don't have to be a diva all the time. Uh, you don't have to go a full 180, but you, you'd be surprised how hard it is for some people to budge even 10%. Often a little bit goes a long way. Having an open mind doesn't mean letting what the other person says come in one ear and go out the other. Just as you want to change their minds, they want to change yours. And as confident as you are of yourself, as sure of you, as sure, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I, I can tell you this, I am sure of all of my opinions. They're equally confident and sure in theirs. And who's to say you're always right? No one's perfect. Stick to your principles, but remember the old saying, who is wise? Who is wise? He who learns from everyone is wise. Or she who learns from everyone is wise. Be willing to change and modify your opinion if they're facts and reason and hold up. Sometimes it don't. Sometimes they just talk loud, and as James Brown would say, they're saying nothing. Scientists do it all the time. They say this is what they say. So do doctors. They let the evidence dictate the diagnosis, not the other way around. And finally, dialogue for solutions. Civil discourse is a dialogue, a back and forth, conversation meant to move things forward. Civil discourse is a dialogue. It's a dialogue, a back and forth conversation meant to move things forward, to discover truth and solutions. And sometimes it involves compromise. Compromise is not a dirty word. You, can, you can't do it alone, and you can't do it by playing your side only. It's a two-sided game. Look at, look at it like a sports contest. You're only as good as your opponent, the great teams, the great players. They're only great because they played against, were tested against other great teams and players. You need the other side for perspective, for self-improvement. And President Obama, and I have to mention the president a lot because, you know, I'm going to miss him. Thank you. I'm going to miss him. And I'm going to miss our first lady who is fabulous. And of course, that cool and remarkable vice president, his beautiful wife, Joe Biden, and Jill Biden. I like them, I love them, I, full disclosure. But we all know that the president had a difficult time. He's had a very difficult time in Washington, D.C., that's no secret. 
but he's always recognizing, he's always looking for ways for dialogue and bringing the best ideas of both parties together. Some of his words bear repeating in consideration. He said, if each side want 100% of what is their own philosophical or ideological predispositions, then we will never be able to get anything done. He also said that disagreement cannot mean dysfunction. It cannot degenerate into hatred. We must remember the goal, and ultimately what we all want, I believe, is the same thing. We want to be able to live in a society that is safe and secure, and all of us have access to the American dream. We want safety for our families and our country, a chance for economic advancement, a good education, and yes, I also think that we want to see more peace and justice in this world as well. So the guidelines I listed, they are hardly rules, and they are true of any civil discourse, whether it's with friends, with teachers, with the neighbors across the street, or your uncles across the country. And we all have crazy uncles. But it's important. It is important for the vitality of our democracy. It's important because we need more civic engagement in our society. And it's important because we all want to make progress, progress that we can all be proud of. And civic engagement is the only way to have a vote. It all starts with the vote. You know I had to end with the elections. And that's why I believe this election matters. Our public discourse is just totally off the chain. It's bad. You can't go nowhere in this country today without somebody walking alongside you saying, I can't wait for it to be over. And I say, me too. I don't know why we're screaming at each other. I agree. And people are whispering what we should be saying out loud. We want a better dialogue. We want a conversation. And let's see if we're going to get that um, at the first presidential debate in a few weeks, September 26th, for those of you who have DVRs. As Professor Larry Zabato has said, elections have consequences. Every election is determined by the people who show up. So I'm urging you, pleading with you, demanding that you show up and return your ballot to your polling location or put them back in the mail. I know I'm in Colorado. <laughs> Decisions you make this election season will not only affect you and those close to you, those around you, but they will impact the future. This is a big one. So ask yourselves, where do you want this country to go over the next two, four, six, and 20 years? And think about the consequences of not returning that ballot this fall. Think about your involvement. Think about what you can do to increase the dialogue and to be part of the conversation. And think about how you can be the change that we really wish to see. So why you? because there's no one better, and why now? Because tomorrow is not soon enough. You are the future, you millennials. 
You did this. You changed this country. I got the lights on and nobody rained on me. <laughs> you changed this country for the better. You made the difference. You put a... <laughs> you put an African-American man in the White House. That's all right. There's a way of doing this that makes me think I have to... And if you put an African-American man in the White House, you, you changed the mold. You created the change that we are going to see for the rest of our lives. So we will experience a change this fall. We will get to see someone who has never been on that platform come January 20th. We will see more change in the years to come. As this country one day will elect its first Hispanic, its first openly gay president, its first disabled president or Asian Pacific Islander president. What I'm asking you to do is to promote civil discourse, become engaged, vote, vote, and encourage others to vote. So I'm gonna stop now, because if I keep talking, I'm gonna make an endorsement. And <laughs> you know what I mean. Really spell out the strategy over the next 68 days tell you more about things that I need you to do, but I just want to let you know how grateful I am to be here again in this beautiful state, to see all of you, to encourage you to go out there this fall and make a difference, to get involved, and some of you might get ready to run yourselves. After all, this is about your future, and don't leave it for someone else to decide. You make the decisions, and then you help lead us one day into the future. So thank you so much, Colorado College. Continue to be number one. Go Tigers this fall in all that you do. And now I entertain your questions, your comments, your recipe, if you care to make gator gumbo. And please talk into the microphone so that we can record your voice and tell us your name. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I, should I start with my left because I liked? No, I start with my right. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Dagote, Emily Gonze, Shende. Hi, everybody. I'm Emily, and I'm Chikawa Apache. Hi, Emily. Yes, she is Zanaba Marinish, Sena Bethinishle, Nakabashishin, Toba Dashinale, Adena Dashiche. Hi, my name is Zanaba, and I'm from the Navajo and Modoc tribes. Thank you. The DNC platform reads, we have a profound moral and legal responsibility to the Indian tribes. Throughout our history, we have failed to live up to that trust. That is why the Democratic Party will fulfill, honor, and strengthen to the highest extent possible the United States fundamental trust responsibility, grounded in the Constitution, treaties, and case law to American Indian and Alaskan Native tribes. In accordance with this language, does the DNC stand with the people of the Standing Rock Sioux as they oppose the Dakota Access Pipeline, a pipeline that would cross treaty lands, endanger the Missouri River, and once again show America's lack of commitment to indigenous peoples? Speaking on behalf of the Democratic National Committee, I stand by what was written in our platform 
And if we did not include that in our platform, I will make sure that I discuss that with our policy people, not just in the Hillary campaign, but also our Democratic candidates. Thank you. Thank you. Pat, look, help spread the news about the most progressive platform in the Democratic history. It is a good platform. And spread the news. Thank you for your wonderful participation. I look forward to you two running for office one day. And may you one day stand on the podium as president of the United States. By then, we'll have at least three other Madam Presidents. Thank you. Great job. Yes, my left. Hi, uh, thanks for coming. Um, so, sorry. Uh, so you talked a lot about civil discourse, and I, I think a lot of the people in this room, including you, get the feeling that you're talking about it. Civil discourse, especially between parties, between the GOP and the Democratic Party, but I wonder if you could speak to um, civil discourse perhaps within the Democratic National Party, especially in light of things like the Democratic National Convention's email scandal, which in my mind, seem to imply a lack of civil discourse? There's no question that, as you know, uh, when I went to Philadelphia, I was scheduled to go um, for ABC News on Sunday, and I went on Saturday morning uh, to meet with the Sanders campaign and others to apologize for what I believe to be some of the most unprofessional, insensitive, and bigoted uh, language that I've ever seen from staff ever at the Democratic Party. Uh, many of those staffers are now um, in retirement. <laughs> and I want you to know that in addition to the callousness of staffers regarding a presidential candidate, and Senator Sanders wasn't the only candidate that had um, inappropriate things said about him. Secretary Clinton, Martin O'Malley, others our donors, our stakeholders. It was quite embarrassing to learn what we, we learned. But I have worked very hard over the last 32 days as, as chairwoman, interim chairwoman, to correct that. The worst part of all of it was the fact that for over one year we had a foreign intelligence source, according to the experts, uh, that uh, hacked into our system, hacked into not just the DNC, we're the poster child of, of what happened, but this cyber crime was very intrusive and invasive. And some of the thieves, um, some of the thieves involved uh, have gone out of their way to not only create friction and distraction and division within our party, but also to hurt those individuals whose personal information was obtained. And as you can imagine, when your personal inf information is compromised, um, that's, not, that's not a pretty picture. So we were victims of a cyber crime, a cyber attack. As a, as a result of it, we have spent uh, the, last, uh, the last 30 days making sure that we uh, not just um, bring to justice those who created this havoc, but also improve our communications and our technology. So we've learned a lot from the attack. Uh, and I can guarantee you, as somebody who's not only talked to Senator Sanders on numerous occasions, but also Jeff Weaver and many others involved in his campaign, we've hired several members of his staff, we, the Democratic Party, uh, and we're working very closely together. I've been to Nevada, working very closely together, and clearly here in Colorado and many other states. So we're working very, very closely together to make sure that we are able to not just 
be unified on paper, but unified on practice. So um, that's happening. And you have my word, it's gonna continue to happen. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, my name is John Henry Williams. Um, we will continue to work towards a two-state solution of the Israeli-Palestine conflict negotiated directly by the parties that guarantees Israel's future as a secure and democratic 50 Jewish state with recognized borders and provides the Palestinians with independence, sovereignty, and dignity. This statement from the DNC platform is encouraging, though Palestine's name is only mentioned three times in the document, a disproportionate amount when compared to the number of times Israel is promised protection. What will the Democratic Party do to free the people of Palestine under, from their current Israeli oppression? What will the Democratic do to save Palestinian lives lost under the current situation? And will the Democratic Party support more funding to Israel and in doing so, condoning their human rights abuses? Well, as you well know, uh, our platform reflects our values. It reflects the values of the party and the leadership of the, of the political party. The leadership, the platform came together as a result of the compromises forged by both the Clinton and Sanders campaign. Will it reflect the policy of the United States government under Barack Obama or the leadership of Mitch McConnell and, um, oh God, Paul Ryan uh, in terms of, I didn't get him, that was not a senior moment. Uh, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> That was just good Lord. Um, will it reflect the policies of the United States government? That is the policy of the Democratic Party and I stand by it. Is it the policy of the United States government? Um, is it the policy in terms of the funding by the United States Congress? Uh, Israel is America's friend and ally in the Middle East. As you know, the president has called for a two-state solution. The president has fought very hard to try to get both sides together, and I think that will continue to be the policy of the president of the United States. With regard to our platform, uh, we had some minority reports on different language that um, that um, uh, Jim Zabi and others, he was on the platform drafting committee. Uh, that language was modified, and that's the result of the compromise. Um, I intend to continue to uh, work with both sides to see if we can continue to have an open dialogue about the situation in the Middle East. But that is our platform, and I, and I stand by it as an officer of the Democratic Party. But there's a lot, there's a lot more for us all to do. Yes, sir. Good evening. Uh, my name is Ron Wynn, and I'm a retired educator here in Colorado Springs. Okay. And we love watching you on TV. I just want to say that. You just want me to go back on the good wife. But I guess my question is this. Colin Kaepernick, the football player, the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, is re receiving a lot of heat about his stance on not supporting the flag and sitting during the national anthem. I'd like to know what are your thoughts about this type of behavior, whether it's a good idea or if it's a bad idea. You know, I haven't said anything. I mean, I guess you missed me on television because I would have had to make my comments. Um, it's his right as an American. Whether we agree or disagree, um, whether we agree or disagree with the way in which he decided to protest uh, the violence and the, um, the issues that are happening in our society. We could disagree on that, but that is his right as American, and I, I would hope uh, that he is not punished further for making his views known. I, I regard the, the, the flag, I, ref, I regard the, um, 
the, the Pledge of Allegiance to singing of the National Anthem as, as being very special. I, I always, there's a special pride, but it comes from my own values and how I was raised as a daughter of a veteran. Uh, but I respect his right to protest. I respect the right of others, uh, athletes and non-athletes, to speak out against the violence in our communities and to proclaim their support. You don't have to, I tell people, I don't have to take sides between Black Lives Matter and the police. I support the police, I support Black Lives Matter. My uncle's a policeman, my cousin's a policeman, my nephew's a black man, my brother's a black man. Why are you asking me to take sides? I'm so tired of this conversation. Why can't we have a real conversation about what it means when you're driving in your car as a black person and you get pulled over and you don't know what to do with your hands? You don't know if you stick them in your pocket, put them upset. You don't know. You don't know if this is the day you're going to die. Why does it mean that when you see a cop, you fight and you get scared? I tell people I go to them all once in a blue moon. Why? I am tired of people asking me, may I help you? Let me find out if I even want to come into Macy's. I mean, it is, it, racism is real, how, how, and I don't want it to be real anymore. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of being judged and stereotyped. And now Donald, well, we, we, need, we need to end the era of mass incarceration. We need to stop this, this end this school to, to the prison pipeline and build, and build real strong relationships between our law enforcement officials and our communities. When that young man was murdered and shot in Baton Rouge, read his letter on Facebook. A policeman, agonizing, he said, I am a cop. I am sworn to protect the community, yet if I'm not in this uniform, I don't know if anybody will protect me. Read his words and know that Again, every time we have these kind of conversations, it's polarizing. We're not hearing the other side. There's a lot of frustration. I mean, there's a lot of people who want to have a dialogue about this. And God knows, we don't want politicians to just come in, give their three seconds, and then put more fuel to the, uh, to the fire without having real thoughtful, um, what I call real thoughtful solutions. The president has tried, and thank God we have a president who is able to have a dialogue with us and a conversation. But he is trying. He's trying to have this dialogue. Mm -hmm. We need to allow him to have it, and we need to allow ourselves to have it. Let's not wait for the next shooting. Let's not wait for the next athlete. Let us have this conversation on an ongoing basis. You want to know what it feels like to be, you know, over 50 and, and walk in a shopping mall? Well, come with me. You want to ride in my car, let me drive and see what happens when the police pull me over? Drive with me. I'm not asking you to, you know, feel sorry for me. No, I'm just saying, understand what is happening. Know what it feels like to have 19 nieces and nephews having the same conversation with them that my parents had with me and my brothers. I mean, how many more generations have to have this conversation? Yes, it's a conversation white families and Hispanic families have with their kids. We respect everybody. But there's this extra layer of conversation. And I think we all need to understand that we must come together. Sure. There's no other solution. 
Yes. We love you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hello there. Hi. My name is Noah Hirshhorn, and I kind of wanted to shift gears a bit towards the Democratic Party's opinion and what you as the party plan to do to help the environment in the future. I have read the environmental platform for the Democratic Party. I know that you as a party strive for the equality of resources for all Americans, that you strive to create renewable energy to last for a long time, creating a better future. I know Obama's plan to reduce greenhouse emissions 80% by 2050, but I also know that among many Americans, the environment falls at a Sorry, it falls in priorities compared to other issues, such as the economy and health care. For the Democratic Party moving forward and creating a better future, where does it fall under the priorities of the party to create a more sustainable environment for generations to come? You, you know, if you ask the American people, their top three issues is jobs, terrorism, uh, and health care right now. Uh, and in any given moment, uh, the environment lags anywhere between eight and nine. Even with a candidate who I worked for back in 2000 uh, that really pushed the environment as an issue, it never became, you know, larger than seven, eight. So it's not just a party platform that we have to go and hold up. We all, as Americans, how many of you have solar panels? How many of you are reducing your, your carbon footprint? I mean, we all in our lives have to talk about this. Climate change is a rea reality. Those who deny climate change clearly don't see what's going on in this country right now. But we have to make it number one, number two, number three. We have to raise these issues at candidate forums. We have to raise, hope that these issues are raised in the presidential debate so, so we're not just talking about how huge and terrific the wall is going to be or uh, any other crazy issue like that. I mean, I support comprehensive immigration reform. But in order for these issues to rise, you cannot just wait for politicians to raise them. You have to raise them. You have to write op-eds. You have to blog. You have to get on social media. And all of us together have to raise these issues. If you want to know how bad climate change is, go home to Louisiana right now. That's if you can land. I mean, the, the, the last storm we had wasn't even a hurricane or a tropical storm, and yet there was a low system in the Gulf. Now, I grew up in Louisiana. I said, what's a low system? Well, whatever this system was, it just drenched us for days, actually for weeks. The rivers overflowed, the creeks uh, overflowed, the bayous overflowed, the water had no place to go. And the moment the mayor and the governor mentioned climate change, they are told by their their counterparts, no such thing exists. Well, it's never existed. People in Livingston Parish never had a storm. I mean, never had a flood. They have storms. <laughs> I've been there. They had a storm. But they've never, they've never flooded. Therefore, the people don't have flood insurance. So, yes, these are critical issues, and I'm glad you're reading our platform. We worked hard on this pla platform, and I even have a little condensed, little six cheat sheet on the platform. And I'm going to use this platform to rally Democrats, but rally you not just to support Democratic candidates, but to put these values into action. Raise the minimum wage. Let's talk about a progressive job plan. Let's talk about climate change. Let's talk about immigration reform and reproductive rights and criminal justice reform, education, gun violence, universal health care for all. We have to have these, this conversation. If not us, who? Now there. Good evening. Um, 
thank you very much again for coming. Uh, I wanted to ask you, in 1988, under Mike Dukakis's campaign, you landed in some hot water for some remarks about... I got uh, fired with my hot water. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for some remarks about an extramarital affair that George No, I, I said more than that. <laughs> I, I talked about Iran-Contra, I talked about the Willie Harden ad, and I talked the Washington Post story about the extramarital, and I got fired. <laughs> in any case... Uh, <laughs> Do you want to know the date in the hotel, too? <laughs> what I wanted to ask is, what do you think is the place of, a con of the content of a candidate's personality uh, as a criterion for their elect electability compared to their competence? A character matters. And what bothered me, look, I was 27 years old, and I was flipping. Uh, <clears throat> I'm still flipping, but I'm not 27. <laughs> I reached a moment in that campaign when I was tired of the barrage of negative ads accusing, basically implying that black men were rapists and murderers, uh, while I thought the other candidate was not discussing anything. So character matters. Character is everything in life. Character is everything. And you know what happened? I not only stepped down, resigned my position because I didn't want to be a distraction. And that's why I told the staff who had to resign their position, I said, look at me. I got fired on national TV. I made it back. Seriously, you learn from your mistake, and the mistakes, and I learned from my mistake. I learned from speaking out. I was not the candidate, um, and, and I interfered with the message. But character matters. Character is everything in life. And I tell you one thing. I will never stand by, as I'm not standing by right now, when I see the kind of campaign that is crisscross in this country, the renaissance of racism, the David Dukes of this world, running for office again, trying to represent my home state of Louisiana. I'm going to raise my voice. I'm going to make a joyful noise. Like I say, I'm going to be polite. I'm going to listen. I'm going to try to have a dialogue, but I will not allow someone to demonize and to tell the world that black people live in squalid communities and there's danger. I'm like, where has he ever been to? We live in a war zone. No, you have to speak out sometime, but character matters. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello. Hi, I, I, uh, Hi. Firstly, let me say I really loved you in House of Cards. Secondly, um, I'm Wes. Uh, I'm an international student from Pakistan. Uh, my question is, uh, it came up after you talked about cybercrime. And uh, I know the DSP, uh, the DMP has also had some friction with WikiLeaks as well. Uh, my question is that uh, Hillary Clinton, when talking about cybercrimes, quote, said military response, unquote, to cyber attacks. And while the Obama administration does not particularly uh, target, blame Russia and China, Hillary Clinton has said uh, that Russia and China and these hackers have been involved. My question is, if the Democratic uh, Party does come into power, keeping in mind all the previous interventions that have happened, how would a military response even work out? What would be the statistics of it? How would even such a, a response work against countries like China and Russia when Kremlin openly denies it. And wouldn't that be more of an instigator rather than promoting stability? Well, first of all, the Democratic Party is in power. Uh, and the president has not weighed in on this issue. Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi has weighed in on this issue. And many other Democrats who have been, able, who have been briefed by, by officials. Um, as, a, as a member of the Fulbright Board, I had to uh, undergo a vetting process, a very extreme vetting process, uh, by the State Department. And as a result of the hacking that occurred by uh, 
we presume, at least it's been quoted in the newspaper, by Chinese officials. In fact, they just caught the perpetrator. My information, my information was compromised. So cybercrime, we're, we're involved in a cyber war as we speak. And there are attempts to destabilize, and you have seen the stories in the newspaper that this same kind of malware and spyware has been found in some of our voting technology. So we have to be very cognizant of what's going on uh, in the world. Cybersecurity cyber is, is extremely important. You've seen it with Target, with the hacking with Sony, with Home Depot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're all vulnerable to this type of attack. But in the case of the Democratic Party, uh, it, it was severe. They were in our system for a long time. Uh, and then, you know, we didn't detect it. And when we were told it existed, we still didn't detect it. And by the time it was detected with the fingerprints, we had somebody, uh, we hired a firm, um, the, one of the best in the business, the ADT of cybersecurity, and they found it, detected it, and they essentially destroyed our system. So now the material that was stolen, stolen, uh, and uh, distributed to other cybercrime networks is being used um, in ways that are even more vicious than um, some of the emails that you've seen. So we take this very seriously. And I don't know what the quote-unquote uh, military response will be, but I know that federal officials take this very seriously and that we all as Americans should be aware of the cyber threats that this country faces, not just uh, with political parties and nonprofits, but also college campuses in every, uh, every think tank, every um, nonprofit should also take steps, and you as individuals. When you put those USBs, um, thumb drives in your computer, be careful. You don't know where it's been. You know what I mean? Just can't stick it in your computer. <laughs> Figure that out, scientists. And thank you for your question. I don't have a military response. I'm not the military chief in the family. Thank the Lord. My daddy was a veteran, not his daughter. I'm a peace-loving, kind-loving person. I hope never. I, I hope my biggest weapon is always my mouth. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, thank you for coming to speak with us today. Uh, our current voting system is constructed in a way that gives two parties incredibly disproportionate influence in our political discourse. I believe that this duality seriously hurts civil discourse, as most issues have much more nuance than two parties allow for. So my question is, do you, the DNC, support overhauling our electoral system in a way that would reduce your own party's power in favor of including more of the American people in the political process? You want my honest answer? Yes, please. Yes and no. <laughs> yes, I believe that we should have as many parties as we have opinions and ideas. I am not opposed to uh, Americans signing up with any political party, that is our right. I became a Democrat 40 years ago, and I'm proud of my party, and I will continue to be a Democrat. Um, in the Democratic Party uh, primary, it, is, it leans heavily toward Democrats. I have no problem if we want, if we want to expand to same-day registration or other methods by which people who are inspired to join and be part of the Democratic Party to join. Bernie Sanders, who was an independent, joined the Democratic Party in 2015. I have no problems with people joining. 
What I have a problem is, is making our primary so open that it does not reflect the will of the Democratic voter. It should reflect the will of the Democratic voter. We are the Democratic Party. We're not the Independent Party. We're not the Libertarian Party. We're not the Republican Party. <laughs> and so I, would, I know there are crossover voting. Again, this is a state law. These are state laws that we have to abide by. I mean, the only time that the Democratic Party can really impact this is if we can impact state law. For example, I disagree with the New York state law that says that you have to change your voter registration six months in advance to vote in the primary. I think it should be 30 days like most states, 15, two. But remember, I believe that we should give all Americans access to the ballot. I believe every eligible citizen should be able to vote. I believe that we should have short lines and people should not have to wait six, seven, eight hours. I believe that we should have precincts across, uh, across a particular county and not just in one and two locations. I believe our technology should be backed up with a paper ballot. I don't, and we should not reboot our machines before an election, nor should we purge citizens simply because they didn't vote in the midterm. So there are all kinds of changes we can make to our electoral system. But if you're asking me, as a member of the Rules and Bylaws Committee, now you're going to make me show all my hands as a superdelegate. Um, if you're asking me, as a, as a member of the DNC Rules and Bylaws in my last year, by the way, I'm giving my seat to Millennial. He better do good, otherwise I'm going to fire him. Um, <laughs> If you're asking me if we should open up our primaries to uh, participants from other political parties, my answer is no, unless they, have, uh, unless they commit themselves to being Democrats. I know we, we see that. We see a lot of cross-voting uh, throughout the primaries. We got to deal with the caucus system. I do not like the caucus system that restricts that restricts participation based on who could take off and who can, you know. So we have a lot of changes. And as you well know, we, we will have a change commission made up of both Sanders and Clinton as well as others um, that will come together uh, within the next uh, couple of weeks. And that's one of the changes that we will be making. And you have every right to come and testify and also to present your testimony. Thank you. Thank you. Two more questions, and I guess you all going to let me drink some more water. I'm thank you uh, so much. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming and being here with us today. We really appreciate it. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, campaign finance reform. It's become a very big issue in this campaign throughout the primaries. Uh, Senator Sanders talked about it. Hillary Clinton's mentioned it. Um, and I, most people in the Democratic Party say that we need to get big money out of politics. And most Americans, regardless of where they stand on the political spectrum, agree that big money is corrupting our political system. So my question is, as the, I guess, interim DNC chairwoman, will you, um, t will you take action, will you try and address the um, lobbyist and... Um, the lobbyist and special interest money that is taken by the Democratic Party um, so that the Democratic Party can, can have a, can uh, better speak out against uh, the corruption of money in politics? I think the, the corruption of money is awful. It's sinful. And it bothers me, uh, even as chair. I'm trying to go back to the Howard Dean model uh, to solicit online support and contributions. Now, I'm 
in the minority right now in the party. I recognize that. If you go back and look at all of the, the various campaign uh, policy papers I've written, the, 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 the Twitter town halls, I've been opposed to it from day one. I worked under the campaign finance system and the Al Gore campaign manager. You don't need a billion dollars to run for president. You don't need, you know, 40, 50 million to run for the United States Senate. But that's just how, what I call, how exploited we have, uh, you know, we've exploited our campaign system in this country. So as a Democratic Party, we don't accept it, but as the Hillary Victory Fund, which we're part of through the coordinated campaign, we accept it. That's what I inherited. That, that's what exists. That, that allows us to raise untold amount of money uh, throughout this cycle. That is what I inherited, that, that's what exists. That was the agreement that was made before I became chair, interim chair. Uh, but I'm hoping to leave a party that is able to reach back from the courthouse to the White House so that we have down ballot candidates, that we use our platform, and that we go back to raising small dollars and we finance our state and local parties that way. We are, you know, under Obama, the president said, no lobbyist money, no this money, and then of course, no PAC money, and now, because there's a new sheriff in town. I'm not the sheriff, by the way, I'm just a deputy. Mm -hmm. But that's big money, as you know, is corrosive, uh, and they influence. Um, and that's the system we have right now. And we are going to continue to oppose it. I am my own personal capacity. And as soon as my interim chairpersonship is over with, I'm going back to being the same feisty person who likes to open up my big mouth and tell people what I think. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, I just moved out here from uh, Chicago not too long ago. I was at the University of Chicago for many years, and I've been active in politics. I'm older than you are, believe it or not. Really? I'm quite older. Okay. I've been active in politics all my life in too many parties. Uh, but in any case, you're on a college campus tonight, and uh, I've been going back and forth on the Internet, and a whole bunch of us have, about the University of Chicago's president who's issued a new open campus letter where nothing is protected. There's no safe places. You're supposed to be able to talk rationally and reasonably with anybody without closing them off. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but it's a significant discussion in the Chicago area on college campuses. I just wondered your opinion of it. Basically, it gels down to keep an open mind, keep open ears, and shut your mouth once in a while. I like it. Uh, I read it, I support it, and um, when I return to campus next week at Georgetown, I'm going to make sure that my students get a copy, and we're going to have a conversation about it uh, before I begin my uh, 15th uh, year at Georgetown. So I think we, we need to have dialogue. We, we, we shouldn't talk to, just talk to each other. I mean, the questions tonight posed to me about Israel, about climate change, about uh, making sure that... that um, we respect the right of athletes to protest. These are, these are questions that we should be able to have dialogue and, and conversation about, and there are probably many, many more. And so I guess I'll close on this note. 68 days, folks. <laughs> Who's counting? I, I, have, I have spent all my adult life working on campaigns, and this one, this one is a tough one. And when I say that, it's not because there are not enough votes and voters out there. I say it because I think the American people are, are really going through 
this moment of reflection. Two wars, a deep recession that is really not many of us off our stable economic ground, the lack of civility in our society, the hyperpolarization in our politics. There's so much at stake. But as I mentioned in my remarks, it's we the people, it's not just we the powerful. It's people like yourselves who are able to make a difference in the course of the next 68 days by continuing to have a conversation, by listening to others, by coming to forums and symposiums like this, talking to the speakers and talking to each other. This is going to be a very, very consequential election. And I hope all of you take your civic responsibility to heart and to participate and return your ballot, or if you vote in the absentee because this is not where you vote, please stay engaged, stay involved, and whatever you do, uh, just please keep it civil. So thank you so much, and God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for coming, and thank you again, Donna Brazil, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.